I have been asked to do something today that I do not normally do. What I normally do, for those of you who have no idea who I am or what I do, I normally take a passage of Scripture, which I believe is eternal truth. And because it is eternal truth, that means it is always relevant. And because it is truth, that means it is always true. Which means if it is true, it's true for everybody. Are you with me so far? And so I see my task normally is to take eternal truth, which is accordingly contemporaneously relevant and is true and therefore is true for everybody. I take that truth and I try to show people how it is relevant and true for them today. That's basically what I do. I don't even have a Bible with me because they have asked me to give a talk that I have done on a few occasions before that is really a talk about the things that have happened to me. Now, I, I would imagine that immediately you think, how boring. <laughs> but the, the, reason, the reason that I am happy to talk about the things that have happened to me is because the focus is, is not on me at all. There is a little verse in the book of Proverbs that says, Words suitably spoken are like apples of gold in settings of silver. Now, I have no idea what an apple of gold in a setting of silver is, but apparently it is very, very nice indeed. <laughs> the, the reason that I use this particular text as a starting point is this. It's this idea that words suitably spoken are incredibly valuable. And when I was reading that verse on one occasion, I, I began to think back to some of the things that people have said to me over the years. And I have discovered how incredibly valuable some of these things were. And so I like to tell some aspects of my story around the specific things that people have said to me, the apples of gold in settings of silver. I was a young boy at the time. I have one brother, four years younger than I am, and he was sick. Uh, it was a Sunday morning, and my mother had to stay home and look after my younger brother, while my father, who was a lay pastor, went to deal with his pastoral duties. And to my intense delight, my mother said that I could stay home that morning. I didn't have to go and listen to my father. And, and I was thrilled about that. I got a little stool and I put it in front of the fireplace. Now, you have to understand that in England in those days, this was slightly after the medieval uh, times, <laughs> houses were heated, and that's a euphemism, but houses were heated by one fireplace. The rest of the house was like a refrigerator, and it was sort of warm for about one square yard in, in front of the, of the fireplace. So I got my little stool and I sat on it in front of the fireplace. And what would happen in that sort of a situation was that the front of you would fry <laughs> while the back of you froze. <laughs> and when both became intolerable, you would turn around and fry the frozen while the fried froze. <laughs> now, now, I hope you're listening very carefully because there will be a test on this <laughs> before you can go for lunch. And this is how the expression moving in evangelical circles uh, <laughs> originated. <laughs> While I was sitting there, I was not listening to the radio. My father, at that particular juncture in our lives, felt that to bring a radio into the home was to introduce the devil and the world where they did not belong. We didn't have a radio. We did not have television for rather obvious reasons. It had not been invented. When, when I tell my kids and my grandkids that, they say, you didn't have television when you were a kid? And I say, no. And they say, what did you do? And I say, weird stuff like read and think. And that was the sort of stuff. So no radio, no television. Uh, no music playing in the background. I wasn't reading a book. I was sitting on my little stool in front of the fire. And all of a sudden, for no known reason to me, the thought occurred to me that my parents were committed believers and I was not. And I jumped up from the stool and I ran to the bottom of the stairs 
And I shouted up to my mother. I don't remember the exact words. Obviously, it was a long time ago. But I said something to the effect, Mother, I am not a believer. And she <laughs> immediately left her other son, who was sick, and decided that her other boy was sicker. And so <laughs> she came rushing down the stairs. She grabbed her Bible. She opened it at Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. She read it totally out of context and made a very simple application of it. You remember the verse, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, I will come and sup with him, and he with me. That's the old King James Version, which was all we had there. <laughs> Kids said, no NIV, you know, what did you read? Anyway, the, these, these were the dark ages. And so, so she read this verse to me, and I could see no connection whatsoever to what I had just said to her and this verse about somebody knocking on the door and, and somebody else opening the door so they could sup with them. And I really didn't know what supping was either. And so fortunately, she was able to explain to me, this is a picture of Christ risen from the dead, that he is knocking on the door of people's lives quietly but insistently because he is giving them the opportunity to invite him into their life. The initiative is with him. The response is with us. I don't know how much of this she explained to me because I've got years of theology in my mind since these days, but basically this is what she was saying. And so I said to her, well, how do you open the door? I didn't see a door anywhere. <laughs> Fortunately, she was up to the task of explaining to a young boy basic spiritual principles. And she was able to explain that to me. And she said, well, you, you really need to talk to the Lord in prayer. And I said, I wouldn't know how to pray. And she said, I can help you with that if you'd like me to. And so my mother prayed with me. And, and she showed me how I could simply tell the Lord Jesus basically three things. That I needed him, that I wanted him, and that I was willing to open my life to him. So I prayed with my mother on that occasion. And nothing happened. And so I turned to my mother and I said, did he come in? <laughs> it's a, a perfectly reasonable question, isn't it? And she said, yes, he did. And I said, how do you know? Yeah. Now, the, I mean, these are the sort of questions we should ask, you see. And, and she said, and here's the apple of gold in a setting of silver. And I'll explain it to you in just a moment. But she said to me, he came in because when he promised, those were the words of a gentleman. Now, in those days, they used to say, an Englishman's word is his bond. In other words, we, we didn't need lots of attorneys in those days, because if you said you'd do something, you did it. And if you said you wouldn't do it, you didn't do it. And there was no point getting into the courts, no point getting into suing people and all this kind of stuff. Your word was your bond. And that was it. And I understood that and what, what my mother explained to me at that particular time in a rather delightful little apple of gold in the setting of silver was this, that the word of Christ, the promise of Christ is the promise of a gentleman and you can be totally convinced of it. And I want to tell you this, that has become, that has been all my life a foundational principle. Can you see the foundational principle there? It is this, absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of the claims and the promises of Christ. Now, try, try to imagine what that does to somebody. It, it becomes a fundamental building block of their lives. Absolute confidence in the claims and the promises of Christ. I was so blessed to be given a flying start like that. Now, a word of encouragement to those of you who may be dealing with this whole issue of being a mother or a grandmother. Never underestimate the ability of young people to grasp profound eternal truth. Never underestimate their ability to grasp profound eternal truth. And secondly, never underestimate the profound ministry that a mother has to her children. And be assured of the fact that you will, in the formative days of your child or your grandchild, be the person who is more likely than anybody else to introduce them 
to profound spiritual eternal truth. And make sure whatever else you do, that you're up for it. And I'm grateful for a mother who was. So there's my first apple of gold. Now, the second one relates to my father. He had a um, small grocery store, and he sold candy. We called them sweets. And the access and egress to our living quarters was through the, sh- through the shop. And I had to walk past the candy counter every time I went in, every time I went out. Now, you've heard the expression, as happy as a kid in a candy store, right? Don't believe it. <laughs> Don't believe it. Because I had to walk past this wonderful display of candies every time I went in and out. But I was told, they are not yours. You don't touch them. If you want one, you ask. And the answer will probably be no. (laughs) That was it. This is, is, I told you, it was the dark ages that I was growing growing up. So so I dutifully went in and out past these candies uh, until one day, one day, some overpowering impulse came over me. And as I walked past the candies with a tremendous athletic movement, <laughs> quicker than the human eye could discern, I whipped a candy out of its container and into my mouth and kept going. And then I heard the voice of God. <laughs> I thought that's what it was, for this voice said, Stuart, come here. And it was worse. It wasn't the voice of God. It was my father. And I didn't know that behind all the displays that he had with all the ham and jam up there, he had some little peepholes so that when he was round the back cutting up bacon or butter or cheese or whatever else it was, weighing out sugar, he could see what was going on. Because some people did have a tendency to, you know what. So he said to me, Stuart, come here. So I, I dragged my weary way around to him. Now, my father in those days used to wear a starched white apron with a big bow tied in the middle. And I stood in front of him and stared him straight in the bow. <laughs> now, you have, you have to understand, to a relatively small boy, the idea of standing before an aggrieved father who knew what I had done and who was standing there with this brilliant, white, starched, impenetrable exterior. That was a totally overwhelming experience. And he he gave me a talk. The talk hinged around an apple of gold in a setting of silver, which I will give for you. We never touch what isn't ours. We never touch what isn't ours. It's a very simple little thing. It's amazing how it becomes a foundational principle for the rest of your life. In business, in relationships, in in, in all kinds of situations. So that that was the the text, but the sermon went on quite some considerable time. (laughs) You see, it's hereditary. And, and he, he, he waxed very eloquent about the fact that I had now embarked on a life of crime. And that if I continued in this vein, there was all kinds of, of very dire circumstances. It did seem to me, Sunday, although I was completely intimidated by the thing, it did seem to me that he was, he was pushing it a little bit. It, it did seem a bit much. But anyway, uh, that, was, that, that was by the way. And then he said to me, Stuart, look at me. Now, isn't it interesting, when, when somebody is rebuking you, how you do not want to make eye contact, you see? And the last thing I wanted to do was to look at him. But uh, I did, because I had no alternative. And my eyes traversed this glistening, white, impenetrable exterior of his starched apron until my eyes came to his face. And then I saw something really quite fascinating I saw a stern face, but in the corner of his eye, I detected the trace of a tear. And in the corner of his mouth, I detected the trace of a smile. And that was my father. Stern, strict, principled, with a touch of humor and a compassion. And you know what my father did for me? My father gave to me a beautiful, balanced picture 
of God. Some people just think of God as being their buddy and their friend. They don't know that God wears a starched white apron of righteousness and purity and holiness. They don't understand that because God is pure and righteous and holy, that he is not fiercely indignant about the fact that we casually and carelessly abuse his law and his character and tell him, in effect, he's in irrelevance because we know better than he does. They, they don't have this perception of God being like that. They just think of God being the one with the tear in the corner of his eye or the smile at the corner of his mouth. So understanding, and he loves us unconditionally, so we can do what we like, and it doesn't matter. He's just a pushover in the end. Of course, there's the other extreme, and that is the people who've been brought up to be mortally terrified of God and utterly intimidated by him, and they don't see that he understands our frailty and grieves with our hurts. What we need is a balanced view of God. And the balanced view of God that I have in my mind all the time is of my father with a starched white apron and a stern face with a trace of a tear in the corner of his eye and a smile in the corner of his mouth. And he it was who told me that very simple principle, we never touch what isn't ours. And I never have. Because, you see, it's amazing what you can instill in a child. One of the things that my father used to do at the end of a busy day was count whatever he'd made during the day. Now, <laughs> we didn't know this, but this was the Depression. We didn't know that was what you called it. And then the war, the 1939-45 war started. Well, it started in '39 for us. That started. So we went from a monumental economic depression straight into the Second World War. And we didn't know what a struggle that little business was until our parents died, and then my brother and I went through their affairs. And at the end of the day, my father would take the cash that had come in his till, and he would count it, and then he would put it in two piles. And I would sit uh, on a little desk and, and watch him do this. And the first time I noticed that he put it in two piles, I asked him why, and he said, because I have two cash boxes. And I said, why do you have two cash boxes? And he said, well, all that we have and all that we own, we have and own because of God's goodness to us. We wouldn't have anything if God were not so good to us. And he said, because God is so good to us, we want to say thank you to him. We want to express our gratitude. And he said, sure, one of the ways that we do that is this. We take one-tenth of everything that we earn, one-tenth of it, and that does not belong to us. That is God's. That is an expression of our gratitude to him. Now, he said, sometimes we, we can forget that. Sometimes we can spend what isn't ours. Because remember, Stuart, we never touch what isn't ours. And so, you know what my father used to do? He used to take one-tenth of his income, and he would put it straight in a cash box that was God's cash box. And then we lived on the rest. And that was a principle that my father impressed upon me. For you see, one of the worst things you can ever do is touch what isn't yours. Can you see some foundational principles already? You know, you, 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 if you've ever wondered what in the world made him turn out like that, well, now you're finding out, you see? And, and I'm still about nine years of age. You say, you're only nine and you're going to tell your life story? Yes, it's going to be a long session. Let's move along quickly. I was growing up in, in a Christian environment. It was a consistent Christian environment. It was a strict Christian environment. There were aspects of it that I didn't agree with. There are aspects of it that to this day I don't agree with. But I'm extremely grateful for the foundational principles that were put there. When I was 17, I arrived at, my, at the moment when I achieved my lifetime ambition. Now, that, that's early. People usually don't achieve their lifetime ambition so quickly. But let me hasten to add, my lifetime ambition was not particularly noble. It was simply to leave school. <laughs> that was the one thing I wanted to do. I wanted to get out of school. I detested school. I discovered later that my teachers were equally thrilled <laughs> when I left school. Now, subsequently, I've discovered why I didn't like school. In England, we, ha we had, in those days, an iniquitous educational system that required a boy 
when he was 10 years of age on one Saturday morning to sit a series of examinations and the results would determine whether he could go to a grammar school which would lead to university and to the professions or if he failed it, he would go to an artisan school in which he would go into, into a trade. So in other words, in the English system in those days, your professional career was determined one Saturday morning when you were 10 years of age. That was how it worked. Well, my parents were concerned about this, so they made me, excuse me, it was the 11, it was called the 11 plus exam when you were 11. My parents made me sit it when I was 10, just for practice. I didn't know what they were doing, so I went and sat the thing, and to everybody's amazement, I passed. And so now as a 10-year-old, they stick me in with the 11-year-olds. But the first day in school, the headmaster came in and said, we've made a mistake. We've admitted three too many students. And uh, so I thought, oh, well, they're going to send me back where I belong anyway. And I was kind of relieved about that anyway. They said, so we've taken the top three in the county, and we're going to put them into the second grade. And I was one of the three. So now, as a 10-year-old, I'm with the 12-year-olds. So I graduated from high school when I was 16 instead of 18, but they wouldn't let me go to university. And so I said, what do I do for two years? (laughs) And they said, you didn't do very well at Latin. (laughs) And so the best that they could come up with was that I do two extra years of Latin. Well, I was ecstatic about that, (laughs) as you can imagine. So I just just left school. I I just left. I said, I'm out of here. And I went and got a job in a bank. And they sent me to another town. And my parents made sure that I went to a little church of the same variety as the little church they belonged to. Well, it wasn't as little a church as the little church I'd grown up in. How little was the church I grew up in? Well, my brother and I were the Sunday school. <laughs> Until we grew up and we became the youth group. I mean, I, I, kid, I kid you not, that was it. I, I look at the programs we have at Elmbrook for all our kids and all the people say, oh, we need this, we need that, we need that. I say, you don't need any of it. You don't need any of it. <laughs> it's amazing what you can do without. But anyway, that's, that's another subject. So I go to this little church. I'm there about three weeks, and a total stranger came up to me. And he said to me, how old are you? He didn't ask my name. He didn't know who I was. How, how old are you? I said, I'm I'm 17. He said, it's time you were preaching. (laughs) I said, said, pardon? I mean, you know, that's what the English say, pardon. The American would just say, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Pardon? I said, it's time you were preaching. Uh, I, I can't preach. I can't preach. And here's the apple of gold. There's setting of silver. How do you know you can't do what you've never attempted? How do you know you can't do what you've never attempted? Well, I mean, that, that put a you know, torpedo under my waterline. But he didn't just leave me to sink slowly in the West. He said, you will preach a week from Tuesday to the youth group. And your subject is the church at Ephesus. Now, that juncture, I was not aware that they had a church (laughs) at Ephesus. But you'll be surprised to know that I became highly motivated. I wanted to learn all that I possibly could about the church at Ephesus. Why? Because I was suddenly a born theologian. Suddenly, I was a raving evangelist, right? No! No, my motivation was this. I don't want to make an utter fool of myself and show everybody that I don't know anything about the church. You see, the interesting thing is this, that God doesn't always wait for the most noble motivation. You know why? Because if he did, nothing would ever happen. It's amazing that God will take somebody's pure, his, his, his only motivation is just want to make a fool of himself. Incidentally, when we moved house a few years ago, Jill was going through some old papers, and to my amazement and my horror, she found the notes of my original sermon. The church at Ephesus, it has three points, <laughs> all beginning with the same letter. <laughs> and she framed it. 
And if you come to our house, it's stuck on the wall to my everlasting embarrassment. And I'll tell you what's embarrassing about it. There is so little discernible improvement over, over the other. So the day comes. I stand in front of the group. I've got my notes on the church at Ephesus. I dare not look at the people I was speaking to. I dare not look at the clock. I just buried my face in my notes. But after I'd finished my first section, I thought I'd I'd better see how the time's going because I just knew, you know, the terror of the public speaker just starting out is the clock won't have moved. (laughs) Nothing will have happened. And you don't want to stop because you're going to be greeted by that awful silence of disapproval. So you just try to keep going saying what you've said. So I, I stole a surreptitious glance at the clock. And to my amazement, it had moved. In fact, it had moved very rapidly indeed. In fact, it had already moved past finishing time, and I'd only just finished my first point. <laughs> and I blurted out, I know what I wanted to say, but what actually came out was not what I intended. What came out was, I'm, ter- I'm terribly sorry, I, d- I don't know how to stop. <laughs> what I meant was, I'm sorry, I don't know how to draw this to a conclusion. But I, I, I don't know how to stop. And an old man who, for, for some unknown reason, was sitting on the back row said, shut up and sit down. The man who had started me off with this situation came up to me rather accusingly. He said to me, you didn't finish. I said, well, well, no. He said, you'll finish it next week. And so I was back the next week with the conclusion. I I made sure of this. With the conclusion of my talk on the church at Ephesus. And I thought, well, that's great. (laughs) That's the end of my preaching career. Now I can relax. But I, I was wrong. This fellow came up to me. And he said, now, a lot of little churches around here don't have pastors. And he said, I've put you on the Methodist circuit. And uh, so I said, what does that mean? He said, it means that you get on your bicycle on a Sunday afternoon and you ride out to the little villages around here and you take the service in the little Methodist churches. Well, in those days, you see, this was before teenagers knew they could rebel. We, we thought that you're supposed to do what you're told, and so I dutifully got on my bicycle and, and started going off. And, and I said, what do I do? And he said, you, you pick two or three hymns, and you, and, you, and you have a couple of prayers, and you take a collection, and then you talk to them. I said, what about? He said, the church at Ephesus. And so, and so I began to evangelize the whole area on the subject of the church at Ephesus. And, and I, di- I discovered why they didn't have pastors in these churches. They, had, they didn't have congregations. I would, I would often preach to two or, or, or three old farmers. And uh, they, were, they were wonderful guys. They'd already done a day's work before coming to church. They'd stoked up the old uh, wood-burning stove in the middle of the little chapel there. It was baking hot. They'd crammed themselves into their... Uh, their, their only Sunday suit that they got married in, you know, 45 years earlier, and it fit where it touched, and, and they were sitting there very uncomfortable, but they, they were great encouragers. They, they, would, they would say, that's, that's right, lad. That's right, you tell him. Yeah, you tell him. And they'd turn around and punch each other. Did you hear what he said? <laughs> and I sometimes think when I'm preaching in Elmbrook, you know, in this beautiful, beautiful sanctuary with three and a half thousand people there sitting yeah, I sometimes think, wouldn't it be wonderful if just somebody would shout, that's right, lad. Hi. <laughs> yeah, you know, but anyway, that doesn't matter. So, so that, that, was, that, that was how it started. Okay, so, so see what's happened so far. These are the words of a gentleman. We never touch what isn't ours. And how do you know you can't do what you've never attempted? Okay, now there's some foundational principles coming here. They're called apples <laughs> of gold in a setting of silver. Well, I, I, I need to move along. When, when I was 18... <laughs> well, that's moving along. <clears throat> Don't worry, there's some big, boring <laughs> passages of time here that we can skip over very quickly. When I was 18, I got a very nice letter from the English government saying, we have a war on in Korea, and we'd very much like you to come and help us with it. 
quite frankly, I was more interested in my career than I was in career. <laughs> Little pun there, but don't worry about it. And, um, and so I went and I dutifully reported for my medical examination, all that kind of stuff. And then they said, what do you want to join? I said, I don't, I don't particularly want to join anything. And they said, you've got to join something. This, this is conscription. And so there was a man there in a, in a magnificent uniform. And I said, what's he? And they said, he's a Royal Marine. And I thought, well, I could fill that uniform as well as he could. So I said, I'll join them. And uh, they said, only for volunteers. And says, so I said, how do you volunteer? They said, you volunteer. So I said, okay, I just volunteered. So that was how I became a Marine. I mean, it shows how stupid you are at 18. <laughs> but only somebody stupid would, would volunteer for the Marines. And so I became a Marine. I went home. And my mother said to me, what happened, what happened? When she was nervous, she used to repeat the question. <laughs> and I said, I've joined the Marines, the Marines. <laughs> and, and, and she said, what are they? And, and I said, I, I'm not sure, but you start as a submarine and you work up. With... <laughs> and I, I thought that was really very funny. And she was not amused. <laughs> she and Queen Victoria spent a lot of time we are not amused, and <laughs> particularly with her eldest son. So, but we, we did have in our household at that time uh, an army officer, Captain Horace Sidney May of the Royal Artillery. He had been stationed near our home for a long time during the war and after the war, and he was a wonderful friend uh, of, of our family. When he heard that I'd volunteered for the Marines, he said, that's wonderful, <laughs> that's wonderful. Uh, army officers in England talk like that, as if it, as if it hurts. And <laughs> that's wonderful. And he then said, and here's the apple of gold in the setting of silver. Don't miss this one. You will nail your colors to the mast. You will nail your colors to the mast. Now, that, that's a typically English saying, and it, it was something that was rather odd coming from the lips of an artillery officer because it is a basically naval expression. But in the old days, when the ships would sail out of, out of port into, into battle, they would hoist the colors of the, of the sovereign, the king or the queen, to the masthead, and they would sail under the colors of the king or queen. If they got into trouble and had to surrender, they would hoist down the sovereign colors, and they would hoist up the white flag of surrender. To make sure that that would not happen under any circumstances, sometimes the captain would send a man up the mast with a hammer and nails, and they would nail the colors to the mast so that they would say, there's no way, doesn't matter what happens, there's no way we surrender. In other words, you let it be known as you sail out of port whose you are and whom you serve. So he explained all that to me, and he said, you will do that in the Marines. Now, he didn't, he didn't suggest I did it, he told me. You will do that in the Marines. You will nail your colors to the mast. So I said, well, how do you do that? And he said, well, he said, one way you can do it is by letting the men know as soon as you get there that you're a Christian. I said, well, how do I do that? Well, he said, when I joined the Royal Artillery, he said, the first night in the barrack room, I knelt by my bed and prayed. And he said, that told them something. I thought, yeah, I bet it did. And uh, I said, what happened? He said, they threw boots at me. <laughs> and I said, what did you do? I'll never forget his answer. He looked at me as if I was totally stupid. He said, what did I do? He said, I cleaned them and I returned them. He, uh, he was my mentor. Captain Horace Sidney May of the Royal Artillery. You will nail your colors to the mast. So I arrive in the barrack room in the Royal Marines and... Uh, I talk about being between the devil and the deep blue sea. I'm between the Marines and Captain Horace Sidney May of the Royal Artillery. When I see this room full of Marines, I think to myself, the last thing I'm going to do is kneel down and have my back facing them. And then the thought was, and then I've got to meet Captain May, and I know the first thing he'll ask me, did you nail your colors to the mast? And so I waited till all the, these Marines were up the other end of the room, and then I thought, well, I can, I can kneel down and make it look as if I'm looking for something under the bed. And if he asked me, did you kneel by your bed? I said, oh, yeah. But, but they... <laughs> and, and so that's what I did. And, and, and as soon as I did, there was a terrible silence descended on the room 
then it was broken only by the creaking of floorboards and I realized that they were walking towards me, about 30 of them, in the barrack room. And uh, I waited for the boots. Nothing came. I couldn't think of anything to pray about. So I, I thought, well, I'll just stay down here. And I thought, I really can't do that. I'll have to get up sometime. So I counted up to 25. <laughs> and uh, I got up. And to my amazement, no boots came. They were all standing around my bed in a, in a big circle, about 30 of them, I would guess. And they began to talk about me as if I was not there. One of them said, what was he doing? And somebody else said, I think he was praying. Who to? God. Well, where is God? He's not under the bed, is he? Is he? There in the clue. And they began to talk about God and about prayer, and they began to fire questions at me. And that first night in the Marines, they all sat on their beds, and I had the opportunity not only to explain that I was a Christian and why I was a Christian, but how to become a Christian. And it was absolutely nothing to do with me because I was frightened out of my wits. But the nice thing about it is this. If in whatever tentative way you do, you nail your colors to the mast, God will take it and use it. That's right, man. <laughs> Tell him, lad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've seen the foundation principles here. Okay. Nail your colors to the mass. Let them know whose you are. Uh, I got out of the Marines, went back to the, the, the banking business, continued preaching in my spare time. Round about that time, I noticed, and it, you didn't really need to be very observant, that the people in England were staying out of the churches in droves, particularly the young people. And the, the people in the churches tended to spend a lot of their time criticizing the young people who were this, that, and the other. And one day, it did occur to me, I wonder, I wonder how many of these people know anything about these young people of whom they're so critical. And I came to the conclusion, and I've asked some of them, that uh, they really didn't know and anything about these young people, didn't want to know about them. And, and so a friend and I, uh, we, we, we started going into some of the coffee bars in England. They were in vogue at the time. Now, this was, let me think now, I'm, I'm talking about the, the 50s, the, 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 middle, the, the mid-50s, something like that. And uh, it was the time when the, with the Beatles, uh, the Rolling Stones, the Pretty Things, all those guys were coming. They were all playing in these coffee bars, these dives, and the kids were cramming in there shoulder to shoulder. The kids in those days in England were interested in three things, drinking coffee, growing their hair, uh, and listening to their music. That was it. That was life for them. And uh, the coffee bar was the ideal place to do all three at the same time. They would go, the music was kind of jaunty, and, and uh, you know, they jigged around to it, and the coffee they were holding in their hands as they jigged around would splash, producing a warm, damp atmosphere in which their hair... Would, would grow. <laughs> a lot of them had flowers behind their ears. Yeah? Most, most people didn't know they were, they were growing. <laughs> and so we started, we started going down into, into these coffee bars, and I began to do less and less preaching in churches and spend more and more time with these kids. And what I discovered was very simple and very basic. They would say this to me, if you want to tell us about Jesus, we'll listen all night. If you want to talk about the church, forget it. There was a tremendous antipathy towards the church. There was complete openness to the person of Christ. And, uh, and so that's what happened. And round about this time I met Jill, she was doing the same sort of thing. Uh, in her spare time. She was a school teacher. I was a bank examiner by this time. I was traveling all over the country looking for people in the employ of the bank who got their money mixed up with the bank's money. <laughs> hey, with me? And, uh, and, and Jill, was, uh, Jill was teaching, and both of us were involved in all our spare time in, in this kind of youth ministry. Jill and I got married, and we went, to, um, we went to live in Manchester, and right across the road from where we lived was a coffee bar called the Cat's Whisker. And the cat's whisker was crammed every night with kids. And uh, I thought it might be a good idea if one night I went in there to see what was going on. 
And so I did. It was dark. It was dingy. It was smelly. It was noisy. It was everything I didn't want to be involved in. I was the clean-cut ex-Marine commando who was a bank examiner. Can you imagine me in a place, <laughs> in a place like this? And, uh, and I, I, really, I really didn't want to be there at all. As I went in this place, I tripped over somebody, literally tripped over them. And I looked up, and it was a, a fella and his girlfriend. They were sort of intertwined, and they both had equally long hair, and the hair was all mixed up in each other. And you couldn't tell where one started and the other stopped, it, you know. And, and I, I just said, I, I'm terribly sorry, or something like that. And he looked at me as if I'd crawled out from under a rock. And he was sort of a, had a question look on his face. What are you doing here? And so I thought I'd better say something. And to this day, I have no idea why I said it. But I said to him, are you alive? <laughs> it, was, it was the strangest thing. Are you alive? And... Uh, he turned, to his, he turned to his girlfriend. He called her his chick. He said, he wants to know if I'm alive. And she said, well, are you? <laughs> he said, yes, I'm alive. I said, why? He said, what? I said, why are you alive? He said, why does it have to be a why? I said, surely there's a reason for you, isn't there? He said, why should there be? I said, well, can you see anything in this room that doesn't have a reason for its existence? Floor, no. Wall, no. Doors, no. Light, no. Table, no. Coffee cup, no. Guitar, no. Can you see anything in this room that does not have a reason for its existence? He said, no. I said, are you greater or lesser than all these things? He said, I'm greater. I said, if things lesser than you have a reason for existence, is it not reasonable to assume that you being greater at least have a reason for existence? He said, yes, it is. I said, then that's why I asked you the question, why are you alive? By this time, all the kids are gathered around. And he said, why am I alive? He said, I've never thought about that. I said, would you like to do it now? He said, yeah, I would. And he was dead serious. And uh, after a minute, he said, I know why I'm alive. I said, why? He said, because I was born and I haven't died. I said, that's a good answer. That's a good answer. I I said, "Do um, do, do you recollect having anything to do with your birth? He said, no. I said, do you plan to have anything to do with your death? He said, no. He said, no, as far as I'm concerned, there will be two accidents. He said, in fact, he said, said, I'll tell you what I am. I'll tell you what I am. And this this was one of the most fascinating things I ever heard anybody say to me. He said, I'll tell you what I am. I am an accident suspended between accidents. (coughs) Now think about that. I am an accident suspended between accidents. Do you know why a lot of people have totally empty lives? You know why? That's why. Because they they simply look at their birth as an accident that was outside their control. Their death will be an accident outside their control. And their life is simply a succession of meaningless, pointless, aimless, empty accidents. They are gripped by a pervasive sense of meaninglessness and aimlessness. That's the, that's a malaise. That's a malaise in our societies. And it's very interesting, the more material things we have, the more we think we can cure the malaise by material things, but the material things will never make an accident feel significant. How in the world will anything make an accident feel significant? So I started to talk to him about this. You know, the, they stopped the music now in the coffee bar. I've got my congregation there. Just sitting on there. I stood on the table. I can't remember. Sat or sat on a coffee table and just, just talked to these kids. Told them that they were not accidents. Told them that there was an intelligent God who had created them for an intelligent purpose and made them intelligent enough to discover it. I told them about the fact that none of them had lived up to the intelligent purpose as they understood it, uh, that God was indignant ab- about their rejection of him, but that he loved them. You remember the tear in the corner of the eye and the smile in the corner of the mouth and the, and the starch white apron. I told them about the God of righteousness and justice and holiness and grace and mercy and love. And I told them uh, uh, the whole story of Jesus. And they sat there as if they, they were sponges, soaking it all in, soaking it all in. And in the end, the guy who I first got into conversation with, he, he jumped up. He said, I've got to go. I've got to go. He said, before I go, I want to tell you one thing. 
pointed his finger at me. He said, I want to tell you something. I said, what is it? And here's the apple of gold and the setting of silver from the most unlikely person. This is what he said to me. You don't believe a word of all this that you've been telling us tonight. I said, what? He said, you don't believe a word of it. I said, why in the world would you say that? Oh, he said, that's easy. He said, what you have told us tonight, he said, it is the most wonderful thing I've ever heard in my life. But if people like you really believed it, you'd have been down here long before tonight to tell us kids. The problem with people like you is you don't believe what you believe. And he turned on his heel and he walked out and I never saw him again. And I never recovered from what he said. The trouble with people like you is that you don't believe what you believe. And so I went home and told Jill about this and, and that began to do something that uh, the Jill often says, when, when a major change is coming in your life, God use, uses something rather like a cook getting a cake out of a dish and you, you loosen it around the edges first and she said I think God's loosening us around the edges here and uh, that, that was precisely what, what he began to do and he began to loosen us around the edges we had to make a decision my business career was taking off I was getting more and more responsibility my, my ministry in the uh, with these young people was taking off we began to open our own coffee bars the first one we called the bar non and uh, everybody said it wouldn't work and a thousand kids came in the first night we opened another one called the catacombs in the cellars of bombed out buildings in the city of Manchester we got all the art students uh, to come and they researched the murals in the catacombs in Rome and, and painted all the walls in, in, in these places and uh, and, and that, that was what we, we began to do. And in the end, Jill and I realized that we couldn't carry on the pace we were going, the, the, the pace of, of ministry and the pace of business. And my problem was I loved them both. I thoroughly enjoyed the business world. Whenever I'm with businessmen now, I get itchy feet as well. Uh, and yet I love ministering to these kids. And so we prayed about it, and we said, God, we, we can't go on like this. We need to have some changes. We don't know what they are. If by any chance you want us to leave the business world and go into ministry with the young people of Europe, that, that was our vision. If you want us to go into ministry with the young people of Europe, uh, then we'll do it, but we need some clear indication from you. And, uh, the clear and we said the clear indication would be if some ministry asks us to go and work with them. <laughs> that was the safe enough thing to do because nobody ever had <laughs> and within a week two ministries did oh, you see so, so it was pretty obvious what we should do but then but then at that critical moment while I got these two offers to go and work with two different Christian organizations wouldn't you know that the general managers of the nationwide bank sent for me and they wanted to interview me with a view to me going to work in the general manager's department, which was the, which was the fast track in the, in, in the bank. And so now I uh, begin to say to Jill, boy, Jill, this, this is so exciting. Do you, know, do you know how God needs people in, in the business world? <laughs> and and, and do, you, do you realize how that the further we can go in the business world, the more... The more you know, status we'll have, the more impact we'll have, and uh, isn't this wonderful? I, I said, I, I, I know, I know what they're going to offer me, I, because I'd been in the bank for all those years, I'd never seen a general manager, and now suddenly I'm invited to, to meet all of them in one room at one time. And uh, Jill said to me, you promised, you, you, you promised, you promised the Lord that if he opened the door for Christian ministry, you would go. He opened two doors for you last week. What, what in the world are you talking about now? And I said, yeah, but he's opening another door for me now. And, uh, and, and this is where we need to go. And uh, it, was, it, was a real, uh, it, it was a real tricky time f for me at, at, that, at that point. And, 
I won't go into all the details, but I suddenly found that I had to go and see the general managers three days before I expected to. Uh, And I was expected to meet with both the other Christian organizations the two days before I saw the general managers. And so I'm afraid I was calculating what's the best offer. Isn't that what you do? You know, what's the best offer? Let me keep my options open. Jill reminded me I didn't have one option. That was already shot, but I I was reopening it. And then at the last minute, I had to go and see the general managers before, uh, before I expected to and before I saw the other people. I just had time to go and freshen up, and I had my little New Testament with me, and I opened my New Testament. I had a, a ribbon in it where I'd finished reading that morning. I flipped it open, and a verse jumped right off the page, an apple of gold in a setting of silver. And this is what jumped off the page. Lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They're white already to harvest. <laughs> so I slammed my Bible shut and I said, that's it. And I went in to see the, the general managers. And they said, oh, Mr. Briscoe, we're so happy to see you. We followed your career with great interest. <laughs> and and I, I thought, how am I going to tell them? How am I going to tell them that I'm going to resign? Nobody ever resigned from banks in those days. They didn't pay you anything at first uh, on promise of your pension. And so that was the, I mean, no one ever left the bank. The bank never fired anybody. Nobody ever left the bank. And here I'm I'm thinking, how am I going to tell these guys? And I didn't worry because after they'd burbled on for a few minutes, one of them leaned across the table and said, now, Mr. Briscoe, tell us your ambition. Tell us your ambition. (laughs) And I said, "Uh, gentlemen, I think think I may have a surprise for you. And they said, oh, really? Which is what the British say when they don't know what else to say. Oh, really? And uh, I I said, yes. And they said, would you like to tell us what the surprise is? And I said, yes. I'm tendering my resignation and I'm going into the ministry. And I've never seen three jaws drop further quicker. (laughs) And uh, I had the most wonderful opportunity to sit there with those men and just explain to them why I was going to do what I was going to do. Uh, after a long, long time, one of them looked at his watch. He said, do you think we could perhaps talk banking for a few moments? We seem to have dealt with religion rather thoroughly. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so I, I, I left the bank and, and went into the ministry. But the, the critical thing there was lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They're white or ready to harvest. Okay, so what have I told you? What was the first one? These are the words of a gentleman. What did that do? That built in that fundamental building block that the word of Christ is totally true and utterly reliable. Who else are you going to believe? Who else is going to be your authority? That's a question that needs to be asked in our culture at this time. Who are you going to believe and who is your authority? As far as I'm concerned, I will listen with great interest to anybody saying anything, and I'll put it through the filter of what Jesus said. Because his are the words of a gentleman. All right? So that was the first building. But the second one is this. We never touch what isn't ours. We never touch what isn't ours. The third one was, how do you know you can't do what you've never attempted? The fourth one was... Nail your colors to the mass. That's right. And the next one was, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They're white, all ready to harvest. And by this time, I'm 29, and the next years, they're just boring. (laughs) Not at all. Well, thank you very much. Time's up. Mm